0: Welcome back to Four Eyes, the podcast series that gives you a clear view into the optometry world across Canada and the U.S. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Amrit Bilku.
1: I'm Dr. Deepan Kar. Hi, I'm Dr. Vavinder Vandava. And I'm Dr. Alex Kuhn.
0: Today, we're going to be talking with Dr. Steve Vargo, a graduate from ICO, And after working many years in clinical optometry, he decided to pursue his passion for practice management by earning his MBA degree from the University of Phoenix in 2008. He is a published author, and so today we're going to be talking about his new published book, Prescribing Change. So hopefully all of our listeners can really enjoy the interview today, and if you're interested in the book, you can purchase it on Amazon. We'll have the link in our description box below. Dr. Vargo, we'd like you to tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself, just in case if they don't know who you are. So sure. go for it.
2: Yeah, well, thank you. And, and thanks again for having me. Um, so I am Steve Vargo. I went to ICO. Um, I, I was drawn toward optometry because I always liked the business side of it. And of all the healthcare professions, that seemed like a good fit in terms of you could run the business side of things. And also I, I had an interest in the clinical side too. So that, that that merging of those two is really interesting to me. And started to realize the more I practiced, the more interested I was more on, on the business side of things. And an opportunity came up about four or five years ago to join a group Called Prima Eye Group at the time. And so I packed up the family and out of the Chicago area and moved to somewhere we had never been to Atlanta and started doing practice management consulting there full time. So I, I stepped away from from eye care. Um, and we about a year in, we were bought by iDoc. So my world right now is more consumed with the business side of eye care and, and not so much the clinical side. But I, I enjoy it. It's rewarding in its own way. I used to be able to help people see better. And and now, you know, I get to work with a lot of private practice owners that in all fairness, they don't really have much business training. Uh, you would know better than I would how much that's changed in school. Now, uh, when I was there, we really didn't have a lot, certainly not enough to prepare you for operating a, a business. I think a lot of people kind of get caught there realizing they yeah. don't really have as much knowledge and skills as they need to run that. So it's really enjoyable. I, I enjoy that that aspect of it.
1: Yeah. It definitely hasn't changed um, in school. There's (laughs) literally like, I think we had learning anything. Yeah. We, I think we had one course, course, right. That was on business management. And it, I think it didn't really help that much in terms of like the specific questions we needed answered. So it's Mm -hmm. crazy that schools don't incorporate this more because I feel like optometry, a lot of it is Business (laughs) and you know, so um, but we'll get more into that. And
2: I tell people too that it's really it's a shame that there's not more because I always felt like we were asked when we came out of school um, we were kind of pointed in this direction of going into private practice. But at the same time, we had very minimal training in operating Mm -hmm. a business. Yeah. So and I know there's a lot of other things that need to be taught, but I do think they need to figure out a way to get more of that training in there. Cause the problem comes when you do own a practice, you have to realize that you have to be mindful of the business because it's that revenue. It's those profits. Mm -hmm. Um, in addition to having a nice quality of life, which nobody should ever fault themselves for wanting that, but also it's that that revenue and profit that gets reinvested back into the practice, right. To reinvest back into the staff and the technology and the diagnostics and everything it takes to run a successful practice, but also deliver the best possible patient care.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But that's why we're really thankful that we have people like you who get more into the business side to help all of us who either just don't know anything about business, even if you would teach us a hundred times, or <laughs> if we, you know, don't have time or money to take, you know, business courses, even after optometry school, because who wants to go back to school again once you finished optometry school? <laughs> Everyone's yeah, I, burned out. I'm one of the
2: weird ones who did but, that. Um, um, yeah, you I, did. <laughs> I enjoyed that part of it. Uh, yeah. But most don't, most, and that's fine. Yeah. That's fine, but, but get help. We do have some, I will tell you, they're the the exception or there, there's fewer of them the ones who are really entrepreneurial driven and they tend mm-hmm. to be the ones that really really embrace the business side of things. If you don't it, it's okay it doesn't mean you can't operate a successful business but get help mm-hmm. one, yeah. one way or another, find people that can help you find mentors, yeah. stay current on classes um, and 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 develop that side of it because you'll it's a struggle if you don't yeah. know what you're doing.
0: Yep. And you know, this is where your new book comes in very handy, aside from even all your other books that really help optometrists try to navigate their way through their business and their practices. And so we're going to talk about a lot about your new book today, Prescribing Change. And so we do want to mention, you know, even in your previous book, But I Don't Sell, it covers very similar um, topics that are discussed in prescribing change. So how would you say your new book Prescribing Change is different from your previous books and what will readers learn from this particular book compared to the others that you've written?
2: Yeah it is a there's certainly some some crossover and similarities between the two. With the other one but I don't sell, I really tried to bridge the gap between this, this conflict that a lot of optometrists have between not wanting to sell or not wanting to do it, not acknowledge that they sell anything, but also the need to be able to sell. I honestly never got too caught up with the semantics of that word, but some people do. And it's the title of that book is a little tongue in cheek. Um, But I wanted to give people the tools that they needed to be more effective at selling without feeling salesy and and be able to do that. I would say the new book prescribing change. I really expanded on that book into a broader format, because as we were talking before, there is a a problem I see a lot in eye care, especially nowadays where, especially with independent practices, they want to be able to kind of take their practice to that next level, develop out specialties, differentiate themselves, build a new brand. A lot of that is contingent on being able to get the patients on board, right? With, let's just say you want to develop a specialty like you am, vision therapy, Well, you need the patient's buy-in for that as well. Otherwise, you're just talking a lot. You're educating. You're informing. People are sitting there. They're nodding their head, but they don't actually move forward. They don't act on the recommendations. I talk with a lot of vendors, and a lot of times the vendor for whatever product it is, I'll ask, why does this doctor over here have a lot of success with that service, with that technology, with that product, but this doctor over here doesn't? And the majority of the time, they'll say, it's the doctor it's their approach. It's how they um, it's their interaction with the patient. So, so I wanted to better understand and, and share that. So I think the person who would be a good fit for reading the book is if you did want to take your practice to the next level. And even if you're an employee, even if you don't own your own practice, just the ability to better connect with people and have more influence over patients. Cause I hear all too often that we do a lot of talking to patients but we can't get them to act on the information that we're giving them.
0: It it happens a lot when you're educating your patients on why things are important and you really feel like you've gotten to them, gotten through to them. And then at their follow-up visit, you kind of realize nothing was taken from... Mm-hmm. the last conversation. <laughs> yeah, so,
2: it's, yeah. And it's hard to change. It is hard to change. It's yeah. hard for us to change, let alone what are we trying to do? That's really why I yeah. ended up deciding on the title prescribing change because we're trying to get other people to change, yeah. but change in ways that benefit them, change in ways that exactly. benefit their their vision, their health, their quality of life. And our impact yeah. as physicians really is contingent on our ability to get other people to change. Otherwise, we're just talking. You can educate all day long, but if people don't act on your recommendations, you're not really having much of an impact on your patients. We need something to change. Yep.
1: So speaking of... Ways of getting people to change. You mentioned the best way to gain influence over people is to make a genuine human connection, right? So you go into detail by discussing the connect method. Can you expand on what connect stands for and how you came about creating this method?
2: Yeah. Well, somewhere through the book, I I, I got the idea that this would make this would be easier to. Um, Maybe to absorb a little bit. If there was a some formula or something that people could really um, to look at and, uh, and and recall easily, it's a, it, it's really too deep of a topic to go in here. But the first chapter is before it, I get into the the connect method is called the science of decision making, and that was really fascinating to me. That's something I really yeah. studied in terms of how do we. Get people, how do we have more influence with people and actually get them to to act on information? A lot of that has to do with understanding how people make decisions. And we make decisions from certain parts of our brain that are much more tied to feelings and emotion than logic and reason. So but as doctors, a lot of times we talk to people in a way that we're trying to connect with them and, and educate them, give them all the logical reasons for trying to do something not only does that not connect literally with the part of the brain responsible for decision-making, but we actually bypass that part of the brain and talk directly to a part of the brain, that more logical side of the brain, responsible for skepticism and judgment. So think about that as we're trying to get people to do something and we're talking to their part of the brain that's responsible for skepticism and judgment. Once I understood that, it became much easier to try to come up with these other ideas and these other strategies for connecting with people in a way that that made that connection, in particular with, with that part of the brain. So connect, I'll go through it real quickly. Um the C stands for curiosity. And that for me is where it all starts. Whether we're talking about selling a pair of glasses or selling somebody on vision therapy or selling somebody to be more compliant with their medication, it really starts with getting curious about the other person. If we go back to that neurological side that we're talking about That decision-making part of the brain really only cares about us. It's very narcissistic and self-serving. There's other parts of the brain that we're all very compassionate and empathetic about a lot of things. It's just not that part of the brain. So you really have to to devote more time to to getting curious about the other person. I talk about in the book, stay curious longer and be slower to rush to recommendations. I I think we skip that process a lot. The O is, is ouch, where does it hurt? And that really leans into the um, trying to better understand what a patient's true pain points are. I think sometimes we just find out the super superficial stuff, like they're here for new glasses or they're on their last pair of contacts and we move right on. Mm-hmm. So how do you peel back the layers to get to people's more more of their pain points, especially their emotionally charged pain points? And yes, we have those even with vision. Um, the, uh, the N in connect is no involvement, no commitment. So understanding that people nowadays patients actually want to be involved in their care, that, that sometimes we take the approach of being too directive and there's a time and a place for that for sure. But I, I talk about a lot of studies that shows how much more effective you are as a physician. If you involve the patient, patients want a, a partner in their healthcare, not just someone to tell them what to do. Um, the next stand is no time like showtime, which is really a, a chapter about how do we make a more persuasive presentation how do we use things like vision and visuals and contrast mm-hmm. and stories again to connect with someone connect with that part of the brain so so they understand and comprehend what we're saying because to your point earlier Amber, sometimes you talk to people it's like they're there physically nodding their head but research even shows in situations like that people are so quick to forget even important medical yep. information yeah, um, E is earn trust. And the book really, the whole thing is about trust. I mean, we're always trying to build trust with patients. How do you do that? And, and we think as physicians, as doctors, that patients naturally trust us, but a lot of times they don't. They, they don't. they for a lot of reasons. The, the trust in the medical community and medical professions is not what it used to be. The C is for conquer objections, because sometimes you can do all these things and people still say no. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how do you deal with that in a, in a understanding, empathetic way? And then the last chapter is of the T is tell me what to do, which
0: mm-hmm.
2: really leans into an area that, that's of interest to me called motivational interviewing. And it ties in with other parts of the book that really is built around better understanding the patient's motives for wanting to change. A lot of times yeah. we give our reasons, our motivations for wanting them to change. If it doesn't connect, people are very reluctant to do it. If we can better understand their reasons for change, they're much more likely to get on board with it.
0: Yeah, <sighs> that's. Yeah, <connected>. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're. You've probably said it like a hundred times in the past a uh, few months promoting the book. So <laughs> I'm trying to make it
2: more succinct, as you know. Yeah, <laughs> I, I did another podcast, and I was halfway through that, and I thought I am talking way too much here, so I <laughs> turned
0: it up. We definitely appreciate it, but um, you know, heading into the first chapter, so C, curiosity is caring, part of the Connect method. Um, you mentioned that healthcare professionals often focus on again sharing the information through patient education. But it's often one-sided and doesn't involve the patient. So it doesn't involve an exchange of information. Um, And so without giving away too much in the chapter, because we do want our listeners to buy the book and read it and learn from it, but how can we engage with our patients and actually get them to want to learn the information that we share?
2: Yeah. You know, there's... Uh, uh, I'll share a quick story of something that happened to me. And, and I put this in the book as well. And it really had a lot to do with what inspired me to actually write this book. But there was a a friend of mine who worked out at the same health club that I did. His dad was a financial advisor and the son worked in the company as well. And he kept bugging me about going to see his his father uh, for, you know, who's the financial advisor. And I already had a financial advisor and I, I don't claim to be an expert on, on all of that, but I thought I knew enough and I thought my financial advisor was doing a pretty good job and we met, I finally agreed to do it and we met at Panera Bread and his father sat down and basically the first 20 minutes of the meeting was just him peppering me with questions. And as the as the lunch went on, the questions became increasingly personal. You know, how much money do you make? What do you do with savings? Um, what do you do with money that's left over? What would you do if you got hurt for a period of time and and couldn't work for six months? What if you got permanently hurt? And what what would happen to your family? Would your family be taken care of? So I left this meeting with my head spinning. And I remember actually in the car on the way home thinking, wow, that was powerful. Because I wanted to turn the car around. I didn't even want to go to this lunch. I didn't even want to meet with this guy. And then all of a sudden, I had all these questions. This is the beauty of questions. It opens knowledge gaps. Um, and we get that, I think a lot in, in clinical care, when seeing patients, you get a lot of patients who come in and think they know everything. They think they don't, they don't need you. They don't, they just need the basic. Just give me a new pair of glasses. They don't understand everything we do. But if you can ask questions that actually open up knowledge gaps with patients and get them curious, a lot of times your curiosity will lead to them getting more curious. And all of a sudden you've got an engaged audience in front of you. So I got home from that lunch meeting and I thought, how can I take that? How can we take that and apply it to a to a clinical setting where we can address patients, where we can communicate with patients in a way that get them more curious about what we do and what we can do for them.
1: So I do want to say about your book, um, when you're talking about human connection, there's a lot of books out there that talk about this, but don't give specific examples. And I'm not going to reveal anything about your book, but your book does a really great job of giving specific examples of how like optometrists can properly approach the patient in terms of Educating them or getting them to basically um, take part in the recommendations that they're talking mm-hmm. about. So, I do want to say that. Um, so, that's why it's even more important for our listeners to grab your book and because you do give those specific examples, which yeah, I, think I
2: appreciate. Is, I want it yeah. to be actionable. You know, yeah. I, I didn't want yeah. it to just be theory, but I wanted to be able to, to, and that was a goal going in that somebody could actually read that and have action, you know, be able to. to, to take things from that and, and mm-hmm. act on them and apply them yeah. right away.
1: which yeah. is great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, skipping ahead to chapter five, no time like showtime, you highlight factors to help deliver information to patients in a more impactful way, like telling stories, demonstrating enthusiasm, and being likable. And some would argue that many of these factors can't really be taught, and it kind of depends on whether or not you have a quote personality. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts about that?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And it's something I've thought about as well. What I tried to do in that chapter was, again, how do you create, how how do you enhance your presentation skills in front of a patient so you make that connection? To do that, I, I, I had to better understand what are those things that connect to, again, that part of the brain responsible for decision-making, responsible for people mm-hmm. taking action. And it's very responsive to things like visuals. It's responsive to contrast, which is something we do every day, right? Contrast, which is better, one or two. Mm-hmm. Um, think about it for a second. When that choice is easy, people are very, um, it, it, it's very easy to come up with that that decision. If, if one choice, you know, if one is much clearer than two, it's very easy to make a decision. But as soon as those start to look alike, people get very noncommittal and indecisive, right? The, that part of the brain really likes contrast. Um, you know, things like using stories, keeping the message simple, that, that part of the brain can get overwhelmed really easy to your point, things like enthusiasm and likability. Some people are just wired up more that way. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think that there's aspects of that that you can work on. Some people just are going to be more likable, I think, than others. But if you're kind of a jerk, that's something you should probably work on, right?
1: And I'll tell <laughs> yeah. you, there's
2: some ODs out there that are kind of jerks. Their patients don't like them. Their staff doesn't like them, just yeah. to be candid about it. Um, and, and there's certainly some things that that they should probably work at in terms of that. Um, yeah, I think it can be worked on. Uh, yeah. But you're... It's a good question because I think mm-hmm. some, some of that is wired up in your DNA, but I still think yeah. many of these things are things that can be applied and applied and worked on in, in, in most settings.
0: Yeah. I think I saw, um, online, you do a CEO challenge mm-hmm. weekly, correct? Is that correct?
2: that or monthly,
0: monthly monthly either that or i'm um, missing
2: a lot of uh <laughs> deadlines
0: but <laughs> well i i i happened to stumble upon that and i thought it was really interesting because you challenge people that are in leadership positions monthly to uh work on something new every month and whether it's on their on themselves or as something as part of their practice that they have to work on or with their staff and their team members. So I actually really like that because sometimes when people are in leadership positions, if they are intimidating and they don't know it, then you know no one else is really going to step up and let them know that things might need to be changed. And so your CEO challenge is something that comes up where people might read it and be like, oh, maybe this is something I should try out. And you know, so they really get a chance to boost their practice, boost their own personality, and um, get things going.
2: Yeah, well, no, thank you. And not to dig take, take yeah. a detour there, but it's something that I noticed early on. Yeah. In 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 consulting is the the downside to having what I, I like to call a leadership void in a practice. Yeah. So many of the problems I hear with with the practice growing with staff management problems and a lot of the other issues I hear stem back to leadership. And I, and I started to see the value of having people which usually tends to be either the doctors or the managers. Mm -hmm. Um, having people that are strong leaders in the practice, how much of a difference and impact that could make on the overall growth?
0: Yeah, so you did mention that one of the main uh, points in your book is all about trust. So in chapter six, called Earn Trust, it discusses three areas in developing trust with patients, including authority, capabilities, and results. So how do we, as new grad optometrists, develop trust with patients when we don't really have as much clinical confidence, experience, or an established reputation that other vet optometrists already have?
2: That's a great question. And I have to admit that when I wrote that chapter, I did have a more seasoned doctor in mind, something to work toward. When I talk about authority, you know, and I I don't know how many people actually do this, but I, I, you know, Authority is really a lot of branding. And I always tell people, be a rock star in your area. You don't have to be a nationally renowned expert, but um, make an effort to get to build your name in your community so people think of you. Call up your local newspaper and ask if you can be interviewed is, or their local podcast, get you know, on the radio, mm-hmm. um, whatever you need to do to really build your name that way so you have that level of authority. The capabilities was constantly... Developing your skills because you can't just have the brand, but you don't deliver when people come to see you. So, whatever it is, um, Amrit, your vision therapy—that say, you know, continue just learning as much as you can. Be a sponge. I'm sure you will. Deepan, you talked about dry eye. Um, you're not going to know everything with when you know you first start practicing. At 20 years down the road, you're not going to know everything. Mm-hmm. But if you continue investing in that that side of your practice, you don't have to be, you know, be good at everything but be great at maybe just one thing if that's your brand if that's what you want to do so if you're known by name by reputation and you can deliver on those skills and you can deliver results where you can say look it's not just my theory but here's the the results I get with my patients and be able to communicate that that is a tremendous amount of trust Um, and that will make a lot of difference in your ability to Um, to get people to change, which is really what we're talking about. So you're a new grad. You don't have all that. I remember when I first started practicing, a patient, she was looking at me kind of odd. She was diabetic and I'm going through my exam. And at one point she just came out and said it. She goes, are you old enough to be a doctor? So I was slightly offended at the time. And now if, if, you know, if anyone wants to accuse me of being, looking too young to be a doctor, then I'm (laughs) okay with it. I've decided. Um, But I was talking with a friend of mine who worked at a uh, specialist office and he, and we were the same age right out of school. And I, I said, how do you handle it? Because you're seeing all these people under him and everybody knew the specialist in the area. And he goes, you know, when I walk in, they always look, if I haven't seen them before, they always, always look disappointed to see me. Um, and they're like, Oh, I thought I was going to see Dr. So-and-so. And he goes, I just say, Oh, no problem. We'll grab them in a second. Uh, let me just sit down and, and, and see what's going on. And he would yeah. just chat with them get to know their problems a little bit better. And then it gave him a chance to talk about things going on with their condition in a way that he communicated a high level of understanding. Mm -hmm. So I think if you put those two together, I think trust, again, when we feel like somebody is looking out for our best interest, there's automatically a seed of trust there. And when through the way they communicate with us that we get a, uh, a higher level of, of, of trust that they actually know what they're talking about. It's something that you always want to keep building that trust aspect. But I, I also think that you're going to get that. I, when you walk in the room sometimes, like how old are you? Mm
0: -hmm. Um, but I I would focus
2: on just, just making sure that you create the, uh, that, that you stay curious about the other person Mm -hmm. and just demonstrate through the words you use through your actions that you do know what Mm -hmm. you're talking about.
1: Yeah, I think what you said is like super important. I'm, I'm sure, Amrit, you've also got the, how old are you? All I've gotten time. that like at least three times time. already. You hate it until yeah, it stops. it's like I mean, yeah, but it's like, it's exactly what you're saying. It's like, oh, how do I now handle this? Or, you mm-hmm. know, and then you kind of just sit there and go, well, you know, let me talk to you a little bit more and listen to yeah. what's happening. But I think the other thing you mentioned too, just as new grads, um, just kind of building your brand when you start mm-hmm. and I think for us especially for the four of us when we graduated we want we hit the ground running like we were like yeah. okay, we're gonna do everything yeah. in one year that's it it'll yeah. be all figured out <laughs> and I think the one thing that new grads don't realize is that it definitely takes time to kind of yeah build that experience and
2: yeah and I think yeah, we're entering you know, a time where you don't have to be um you know I, I think we're seeing more specialization where you don't necessarily have mm-hmm. to know everything, but what is your area? People ask me sometimes should I go into this should I go into vision therapy or should I what specialty and I ask a question that I think throws them off and'll but I'll say, what are you interested in because i don't I honestly don't know that many people who have really succeeded in any specialty at a high level who who wouldn't you know and I say this in the most admirable way who wouldn't bore the crap out of you at a cocktail party talking about what they did. <laughs> Because they love what they do.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, And most of the people that I see that that are really successful in vision therapy and in specialty contacts, the people who speak nationally on these topics and write, most of them are very passionate about that area. So I would really lean into that and understand you don't have to be the expert at everything. But if there's an area that you really want to build out your brand in, you can definitely, it's not that hard to be the best person in your area.
1: Yeah, which you also one. mention in the yeah. book, like in your community, you can be the yeah. best at something. Yeah, and it's, I think that's yeah, a really important thing. A lot really of people aren't thing. doing it. Yeah, so,
2: yeah, it's, yeah, I'll tell you just, that a lot. If mm-hmm. a lot of people aren't doing it, so get out there and
1: mm-hmm. and do it. Uh, in the book, many factors that you discuss on making connections, influencing decisions, and getting patients to change depend heavily on how clinicians are communicating with their patients. So all this kind of stuff that we already discussed, do you think it's possible to still successfully implement these strategies in those typical 15 or 10 to 15 minute exams that, Mm -hmm. you know, you see at like Walmart and things like that?
2: Yeah, um, we have to. And I was that's something that I was very aware of as well when I was writing the book is that we are not. Psychologists that have hour-long sessions every week with the with the patient. Efficiency is very important. So I think we have to rethink in some ways how we allocate our time because you might only have 15-20 minutes in an exam room with the patient. How do you use that time? And there's a lot of doctors out there who take a very mechanical approach. They like to do a lot of the, the tests and, and they get caught up in the EHR and, and typing. I think we really need to stand back and say, is that the best use of our time? I talk about a way in the book that's a, talk about these three layers. You could approach it in a way of, um, you know, I, I'm, I would tell you to stop asking the question, are you having any problem with your vision? Because that gives people the ability to say no. Yeah. Um, now, maybe there's yeah. not a problem with their vision. I'm not trying to manufacture one, but I think it's just people will say no for reasons when they actually oftentimes do have a, an issue. They might not recognize it as an issue. Oh, itching. Isn't that just something everybody goes through this time of year? Oh, burning eyes at the end of the day. I thought that was just my contacts. Um, flashes. I, I thought I'd have to go to somebody else for that. So a lot of times you won't hear that or people just don't want to bother you or they're afraid somebody's going to upsell them if they mention Uh, these Mm -hmm. sort of things. So I I like just saying, tell me about any problems you're having with your vision, because I need them to stop for a second, pause, and really think about any problems. We need to get that on the table. Your superpower as a healthcare professional is solving problems. So we need to get that problem. Once we've got that, then we've got something to work with. And again, there may Mm -hmm. be times where they don't have anything. um, And -hmm. then Going beyond that to get them to uncover what it is that they really want or what do they fear losing. These have been discovered as psychologists as two dominating motivators for people taking action. So to me, it only makes sense if we can put them in a, uh, get them to a point where they're telling us in their own words what they want or what they want to avoid. Very powerful. And that's really pulled out in some ways out of of the world of sales that people who are good at selling, and I know that's a Mm -hmm. different a different topic but at the same time it's related because a lot of people who are trying to sell something are trying to get someone else to take an action on something we're usually yeah. trying to move them in that direction so if we've got that then we make a much better connection again with that part of their brain that limbic system that more feeling emotion driven mm-hmm. part of their brain that's much more likely for them to say okay I'm I'm with you we got a connection here I want I want to hear more let's move yeah. forward with this
0: yeah yeah. What you just mentioned um, as, as to how you ask that question to the patient. Again, I feel like I agree. It's, it's more open-ended questions. So we did learn in school, you know, when you're taking case history, try to avoid those yes and no questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because if you just keep getting no's, then you, it, it, it doesn't really let the exam go anywhere. And then the patient kind of feels like, well, I've said no, or I've just said yes, but mm-hmm. I don't know how much more the doctor really wants to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then when you kind of ask, like, how have your eyes been feeling? That's something that the patient can now take their time, think about it, and actually tell you how they've been feeling rather than, you know, have your eyes been bothering you? Yes, no. And mm-hmm. then it's kind of yeah, done. Yeah, it's done.
2: So, <laughs> yeah. all right. Let's yeah. And there are studies out there that's showing that doctors are really quick to interrupt patients. Uh, yes. There's there's a few different yeah. ones. And, and there's, I mean, one, I think 15 seconds, another one was 12 yeah. seconds where they actually study doctors. Not only did they interrupt them, but actually prevented the patient from fully explaining their reason for coming in for the exam. So think yeah. about that. So doctors are real quick sometimes to make assumptions too early that we know what's wrong with the patient or just not give them enough time to, to explain why they're there. And I think we do that a lot as optometrists. We get that baseline information that, mm-hmm. Oh, I'm here for new glasses. I'm here for new contacts. Um, and then we just move on. It, it mm-hmm. stops mm-hmm. there, but we don't explore anymore. So to the question Um, Yes, I'm acutely aware of the importance of efficiency Um, in an exam, and it's something that we need to be... you know it, it's just the world we live in with with managed care and there is a from a business standpoint certain number of patients you have to see but i want it to be a great experience mm-hmm.
0: and um you know in prescribing change you do reference other books throughout the book that also focus on making connections being persuasive and influencing change so in your opinion what would be the top 3 books not your own but um, top three books that you would <laughs> that you would recommend um, that discuss the importance of human connection and change?
2: Yeah, I'll tell you a, a couple that had a profound impact on me and and really helped me better understand sort of this nerdy fascination with human psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love the book Made to Stick. If you haven't read it, I think every doctor should read it because it really gives you a lot of insight into how to make a more persuasive and influential presentation. That's the, that sticks. Another one, which it is sort of a, uh, one of the earlier people to really study that aspect of the brain, the neurology side of things in how we really where do our decisions come from? And it was, there's a book called NeuroMarketing, marketing, which is more of really uh, has more to do with sales. I think the book was targeted toward how to be more effective as a salesperson and I don't think most doctors necessarily consider themselves salespeople, but we're nonetheless in the business of having to sell people on change. And, and there's a lot of similarities in in how you approach that. So if, when the patient comes in, sits down, and if, if you want to get the patient to, to take your advice, take your recommendations, act on something, change something, change how they prioritize their vision, that's non-sales selling. Um, and we do it every day. And if we're going to be more, impactful as as doctors we we probably should get better at it
0: yeah I also quickly wanted to ask so do you have any other future books or projects that is coming up next now that prescribing change is out
2: I said the same thing after this book that I said with the other ones I'll never do that again (laughs) (laughs) And so I can't say I won't. I will tell you this, that I am, um, that's the fourth one and I have no, um, nothing on the burner right now. Part of that is because I really love this topic. I mean, this has turned Mm -hmm. into more than just another book. It's it's almost a mission for me to help doctors better understand what they need to change Mm -hmm. in the exam room to be more effective at getting patients to change. I think that's a, a topic that's often overlooked, and it's a, it's all, almost become a mission of mine. So I, I really want to move forward with that with that theme. So I've got ideas for courses and, and classes, and once the world opens up back up again, speaking yeah. and things like that on this nice. topic. I, I just want to continue to to educate and, and get the message out there. So that's why I appreciate platforms like this and the ability to come on yeah. here and, um, and and talk about it.
1: Yeah, yeah very- definitely. We're really happy to have you on here. And I think these kind of topics definitely need to be discussed more just because there's not really any big resource for us to, even as new grads or veteran ODs to kind of look at, to see like, how do we make these better connections with patients and Mm -hmm. it's not things we really learn in school either. So
2: yeah, it's really not.
1: Yeah. Your book was really like really helpful in that, in that sense. And so Dr. Vargo, our last question is actually specifically about you. Um, so you are a perfect example of an optometrist that successfully transitioned from a clinical career to the business side of healthcare in um, practice management accounts or consulting. So what's your advice for ODs who want to pursue a similar career change in the future? And do you think having an MBA is necessary for that?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I get asked about the MBA a lot. And I would say it depends what you want to do. If it's a, I guess it served me well, because when I did transition into consulting, they were specifically looking for that. Um if you, I've had people ask me who are wanting to open up their own practice or they're in practice, should I get an MBA? And I, I would say it, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of money. And I would say no, unless you really want to do it. But I would say keep developing your business um, skills. But if you think you want to take a different career path, then maybe. I mean, you might want to look into that. Gosh, I can only tell you my my experience, and I, I don't know what the what the right path is. Also, I, I would I would say um, if you want to consider taking a similar path or getting into industry or consulting or you're interested in, in speaking, which a lot of, um, ODs are then, then go for it. But I would also tell you, um, be persistent, but also be patient because I probably from the point I decided that I might not want to spend the rest of my career doing clinical optometry and I decided at that point to get the MBA. It was a, probably a six-year process between that point to the point where I ended up getting the job with Prima. And I had done some things in between, but I did a lot of stuff for free. I wrote articles. I, I spoke. I Basically, anything anyone wanted me to do, um, I drove hundreds of miles to speak at schools and, and didn't get paid. I, I remember the first time somebody paid me to write an article, I was like, you can get paid for this? Um <laughs> Yeah. And then after that, the opportunities pick up, right? You start mm-hmm. to get more, a little bit more like the things we talked about, credibility, and then you're getting paid to speak. And then, you know, eventually you're, you kind of, you do start building a name for yourself. I don't think it necessarily takes, would take everyone six years, but I would tell you that, that be persistent with it. Don't get frustrated in the beginning because you're going to get real excited because you write an article for a magazine and then it's just kind of comes and goes. Um, keep at it. Um, and, and just be patient and eventually people start paying attention to you. It's like, I tell my kids, yeah. it's look in, in sports. I, I tell them, look, just keep getting better and better and better. And eventually they have to pay attention to you. So yeah. uh, that would be my advice if you wanted to take a, um, kind of a, uh, a lateral turn a little bit with, um, mm-hmm. with your career.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, well, thank you so much, Dr. Vargo, for coming on. Um, I think that book, Prescribing Change, it was really an eye-opener when I when I personally read it too. I think it has a lot of great points. And like what Deepon mentioned, the book is amazing because it also has real examples for people to really connect with what you're trying to sell to us, right? So we wanna we wanna be able to Um, learn all the information that you're trying to give to us and so the examples are great the connect method really makes sense and the book flows very well from chapter one all the way down Um, so i highly recommend our listeners to buy prescribing change Um, do you mind letting our listeners know where they can buy the book just before you go
2: You can get, it's on Amazon. So you could search it on Amazon or you could go to, I do have a personal website. That's Dr. Steve Vargo, S-T-E-V-E-V-A-R-G-O.com. And and you can get it on there as well.
0: Yeah. Awesome. And then I'm assuming there they can also purchase your previous books as well. Yes. um, If they don't have any of those. Yeah.
2: Previous as well.
0: Um, but yeah, thank you so much again for coming on. We learned a lot from the book and we're so happy to have finally met you in person. We've seen you everywhere. So it's Mm. really nice for you to come on our podcast. Also to have another ICO alum on the podcast as well. (laughs) So that's great to always.
2: (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. You guys do a great job with this. So I think the, uh, the, the future of optometry is in good hands here. I did want to ask, uh, (laughs) I was watching one of your uh, previous ones and it was a happy hour and there were drinks served. So I was just going (laughs) to ask if I could get invited back to that one because that that might be more fun than just talking business for We should We should
0: collectively invite everyone that we've interviewed and have a really (laughs) big Zoom happy hour Q&A. Yeah, well, I'll be out there somewhere
2: with a cocktail next time I see yeah. you. And yeah.
0: I'll that, have, that might be a go good idea. Cheers
1: to you. No, you're <laughs> always you invited, Dr. Fargo. You're and always invited for, <laughs> for having me. Yeah. Thank you to everyone for listening to Four Eyes. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating to give us feedback on how we're doing. You can also check us out on Instagram at Four Eyes for more content. Look out for new episodes every Wednesday. So until then, stay tuned.